you not only have access to all of the, the mentors and resources here in Kitsap, but you're connected to all of Seattle and soon Atlanta and soon Spokane. One of the most amazing things about this season is how dynamic and different all of the conversations were. Some of the conversations were with women that I've known for years and years and years. And some of them were with women that I just get started to get to know. And it allowed me to deepen my relationship with them, which was so amazing. Elena was one of these women that I had known for just a hot second, it seemed like. So I met Elena because when I started my company, I was starting to go stir crazy. And I really needed a space to connect with other entrepreneurs and get out of my own head. And I discovered Vibe Coworks, which is a co-working space that her and her husband, Marcel, created in my local community of Paulsbo. And it's the only thing like this in our town. It's amazing. They do events. They have accountability groups. They have co-working space. It's such a great space for me as an entrepreneur. And I got to meet Elena when I started working there. And I didn't really know her story. I just knew that she'd started Vibe. And I admired that a lot because it was a really good thing to do. They did this huge build out of the space. It's totally beautiful. If you haven't checked it out, you probably have it. <laughs> My town is super small, but check it out online because the space is like so freaking pretty. But I, I didn't know Elena's story. I just knew that she was running the front desk and she was, you know, introducing people to the space. And I didn't know her background in nonprofit. I, I had seen her twins running around. So I knew she was a twin mom, but I didn't know she had lived in a foreign country and done all this rotary stuff. And then she had moved to New York and then she had come back to her, her town to bring co-working to the community. And Getting the opportunity to sit down with her and record this story was really, really impactful. It was pretty game changing for me and it really established a connection with her. And more importantly, it showed me this important dynamic of we don't have to be one or the other. Like Elena is a woman who is running her career. She's working for a company and she's running her own company. And I think that that blend is really powerful and her passion for both shines through as she shares her story with all of us today. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I loved just being a listener when Elena was telling her story to me. So dive in, dig deep. And here is the story and conversation with Elena Imbach of Vibe Coworks. Welcome everyone to the Finding Fearless podcast. I'm your host, Madeline Pratt, and today I have with me Elena Imba, and she is the co-founder of Vive Coworks, which is the largest co-working space in the West Sound region. Welcome, Elena. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks. So one of the things that we talk about here on Finding Fearless is what it takes to kind of establish yourself as a female entrepreneur. And the question that I always love asking when women come on is what made you the woman that you are today? I think um, that question, there's so many different ways that you can come at it, right? which I'm sure is why you ask the question. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think, um, I was just telling someone this the other day, that when, when blogging first was a thing, which was, what, probably 15 years ago, um, I had a blog that I titled The Day in the Life and Sticks Method. And I still, like, I don't have the blog anymore. It's probably still outside. I was going to say, it's hiding, <laughs> hiding on the internet somewhere. Um, but that title is like, absolutely stuck with me because I think um, if you would have told me 20 years ago that I would be on the path that I'm on or the path that I've taken or all the things that have happened, I would never have believed it. Um, and I think, you know, each of those little micro experiences along the way is really what's made me who I am. Um, a big part of it for me, I think, has been shaped by travel. Yeah. So I, for whatever reason, um, for 
from when I was very, very young, was always interested in all things global, everything that was happening anywhere but here, really. <laughs> um, I love languages. I was the nerd kid who sat in the corner of my room and taught myself Spanish when I was probably in fourth grade. Wow. <laughs> so long before I could actually study it. Before Duolingo, before I Yeah, no, I did. I took, um, it was back in the days of CDs, and then they had the printed lyrics to the CDs, and I would get Spanish CDs in Spanish. I had no idea what they were saying, but I had perfect pronunciation because I would read and listen and repeat wow. what was in the lyrics books. And so that, you know, the languages has really been kind of my key to so many opportunities around the world and traveling. And um, so I grew up here, had an amazing family, super supportive family. My parents don't travel, didn't at the time, don't speak languages. And somehow they were still brave enough to let me go, um, which I look back now and I'm like, I, they were crazy. <laughs> how, how young were you? Like, did you do rotary or did you like just go off? How, how young were you? So I, in high school, I was obsessed with Latin America. Yeah. That was just where I wanted to be. I loved the culture. I loved the language. I had never been, but everything that I saw and read and dreamed was just this amazing place. Um, and my parents, who had never traveled, um, I think had heard all the horror stories and yeah. that's the worst place possible yeah. for a young girl to go traveling on her own. And so what ended up happening, I became really good friends with one of the exchange students that came to our high school from Spain, mm -hmm. which I had zero interest in Europe, zero interest in Spain. Europe just sounded old and boring to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but she and I became really good friends. And so what ended up happening, um, I went and lived with her family the oh, wow. after she left here. And her family ran a, an exchange company at a language school and English language summer camps in Spain for Spanish students that were going outbound. Oh, cool. And so that started this whole chain where I ended up going back for two or three months every summer that I would go and work at the camps and then stay on and just travel. And so it started really in high school and mm -hmm. then continued and after after I finished my bachelor's at Western, mm -hmm. I got a full ride scholarship to do my master's in Madrid. Wow. Okay. So I went and did that and then stayed on in Europe for a while. So it's been it's been this crazy spiral. And I mm -hmm. think I always tell people I think you learn more about yourself and more about your own country mm -hmm. being away from it than you'll ever learn here. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you know, looking back now, that was before that was really there were no smartphones. Like mm -hmm. I remember, like landing in Madrid for the first time and being like, "I guess I should call my parents." And looking around and like trying to find a phone booth. Yeah, I called them from a payphone probably like three days after I arrived. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> Which you know, it's that yeah. I had no idea what I was doing, but somehow I just uh, I wasn't afraid to make mistakes and just kind of go diving naively into things. And I screwed up a lot. Yeah, <laughs> but I learned a lot. Yeah. I, f I feel like, you know, most of us or most particularly women don't get the freedom to do things like that, in, at least until college. Mm -hmm. And so there I was talking with a friend recently and she was saying, you know, I don't feel like I started to know myself till I was even like 30. And she, it was because she first she that was when she first started being able to travel and do things like that. And I think you get introduced to yourself a lot early on when you're spending time alone in a foreign country. You really kind of meet yourself. I felt like it was kind of a weird thing because I felt like I actually did like some of my most like influential, monumental growing up yeah. happened in Spain. And that was something that 
nobody here understood and my family didn't understand. And so even when I came back and started my freshman year of college, you know, I'd been away for the whole summer and I had learned how to manage alcohol mm-hmm. long before I was 21. You know, like, yeah. And then I moved into the dorms and for everybody, it was like my first time. <laughs> Yeah, I remember. I remember, like the running joke at UW was that everyone painted, got their hair dyed purple, and then got an eyebrow piercing because it was like I can rip. I mom and dad can't tell me not to. And so, like that first like quarter of freshman year, like every single person I know got some sort of piercing and like dyed their hair. And like my parents were pretty chill about most things. I got I got a couple tattoos as soon as I could. My mom was a little sad about that, but but like I wasn't. I didn't feel the rush to like you know go do that. But I know exactly what you're talking about when you go in the dorm and you're just like, it's a little, little bit of a shit show. Yeah, yeah. It was funny. And it's not that I, you know, I engaged in all of that. Yeah. Also, but yeah. I had a very different perspective on it. Um, the other thing that I think kind of relates to how I got traveling, um, but also that I think has influenced me greatly, is my dad. So I, so my whole career background has been international it's been nonprofits. It's not been business. It's not been startups. It's not been entrepreneurship, which is really ironic when you look at everything that I'm involved with now. Um, but my family has always been really entrepreneurial. And I didn't really realize growing up like how much of that I was absorbing just by being around it. And my dad, one of the kind of goofy but cool things that he did that I hated as a kid, is back now, I'm like, you were training me. <laughs> is anything I wanted. Um, he made me submit a business plan to him. I and love that. So, so when I was probably, I don't know, I'm going to say 10, yeah. um, I decided that I wanted to do 4-H and I was going to do the markets tier program because that's how you could make money because yeah. you could grow the baby calf and grow it and then sell it at the auction and have money to do things. I wanted a horse, so this was my whole game plan for how I was going to buy my horse was by doing the markets tier thing. So my dad said, great, show me a business plan. I had zero money maybe 10 cents in a bank account. <laughs> it's like, show me your business plan. And he made me write the whole business plan, how, how I was going to pay for a calf, how I was going to care for it, what my selling strategy was going to be to oh find God. bidders to come out to the auction. And that continued. So I did that. He loaned, loaned me $500 to buy my first calf. I had to have a show how I was going to pay it back. I had to go out. They made me like cold call people to try to get them to come so bidders to come to the auction. Oh so I had to have my like, or what they call them, like market letters. I had to grab and I had to quote blog and I had to go visit them in person. <laughs> Same thing when I, you know, had money saved, but then wanted to buy a horse. It's great. Show me your business plan. <laughs> I decided I wanted to go to Spain. Great. Show me your business plan. And yes, that means you're going to have to sell your horse in order to buy your plane ticket. Mm-hmm. So I look back at it now, and I'm. You know, now as a parent too, I'm like, that was brilliant. Yeah. Because it actually taught me things that I wasn't learning in yeah. school. And that, you know, I certainly didn't necessarily learn in the nonprofit world later in my career. And yet the skills and that like system of thinking is so, so important for things later in life. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I, I am that mom now <laughs> because because last summer, you know, Caden is obviously my son and he's obsessed with Legos and wanted some big new Lego set. And so it was lemonade stand was the thing. And so we walked him through getting his small business loan from mom and dad. 
<laughs> and he got a loan and he had to go with us to Costco to like get all the supplies and go to Goodwill to get like one of those, you know, big lemonade things. And, uh, and then he set up at um, the 4th of July parade on Bainbridge Island and he accepted Venmo and cash and he made $300 that day. And he was like, I'm rich. But then I made him, you know, pay back the small business loan and he had to, you know, haul all the stuff back in the wagon. And it was like a really good lesson. But now every single time he wants something, he's like, oh, do you think I should do a lemonade stand <laughs> So he's got the idea in his mind. But like for me growing up, you know, growing up on Bainbridge, like, you know, it's not that we weren't well off, but obviously there's a lot of wealthy folk there. And my parents were just like, yeah, if you want a $200 pair of Ugg boots, you got to earn it. And like, I think having that, that kind of foundation comes in handy later on because you know how to work for something versus if mom and dad just handed you the money for the horse, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have had any of those skills. And I don't think you appreciate that's not because, mm-hmm. you know, you take for granted all of the work that goes into it. Yeah. Yeah. Even on the days when it feels like treasury, you're like, no, wait, but I want it. That's yeah. really hard for it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So, so tell me, so then from going to college at Western and then I know eventually you ended up in New York, but what happened in between there? Um, yeah. So I went, I went to Western, I graduated there. I was absolutely done with school. I was completely burnt out. Um, but I wanted to go to Spain. I was hell bent. How am I going to go to Spain? And the only way to go really was to get a student visa. Yeah. Um, so like I said, I was offered a full ride and I was like, well, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> um, so I did my master's in Madrid and it was a program, it's called Master in Solidarity Action, which means everything and nothing. Yeah. So it was a three-part program that was cooperative development, humanitarian aid, and migration and asylum law, hmm. um, which was a great program. I got to meet people who, every, pretty much everyone in the program was Spanish. Hmm. Um, but everyone works in international development, so now they're all over the world, which is really fun for having friends all over the world. Yeah, yeah. And learn from them. So, um, long story short, I stayed on working for a few years after that up in Barcelona, and then um, accidentally overstayed my visa. So I accidentally or truly accidentally, I had been renewing it regularly, and all of the renewals have been, um, you know, one possibly two year renewals. Yeah. And so I went and just kept renewing, 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 renewed it. I was sitting at the beach in Barcelona with um, four friends who were all from Bolivia and Paraguay. Mm-hmm. Um, and for them, the visa process in Spain is really challenging. And so they were all kind of complaining about everything they've been having to go through mm-hmm. on the visa front. And so one of my friends, and I said, oh, I just renewed mine. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can't share in your misery, basically. Yeah. And so she said, oh, show me your permit. So I handed her my permit. And she looked at it. She goes, you know your permit's expired. And my jaw dropped to the ground. I said, no, I actually didn't believe her. I said, no, I can't be. I just got it renewed. Yeah. She said, yeah, but they only renewed it for six months. And I had been so much on the train of, like, it had always been a year and two years. Yeah. But it never even occurred to me that Oof. it would be renewed for shorter. So once a permit is expired, you have to go back to your home country to get it renewed. I can't renew it there. Mm. And they told me that it could be up to a year or more. And so, in, and at that time, the visas were all of the Schengen zone. Mm. So we said, well, the European mm-hmm. Union. So it wouldn't matter. And what didn't have the option to, like, I'm just going to go next door to France for a yeah, while. Yeah, yeah. And even though my job in Spain, they told me they would hold my spot. This was in 2007. Mm-hmm. 
when everything, the bottom was mm-hmm. everything, mm-hmm. everyone was losing jobs. So um, I decided they weren't going to hold my job. I didn't want to go back to the States. So that left me Switzerland, which was not part of the EU, mm-hmm. or the UK, or someplace completely, yeah. completely different. So um, Marcel, my husband and I, he and I have actually met in Bellingham. So before I, I turned in my senior thesis at Western and went to the bar and then he went to the bar that night. <laughs> so everyone thinks we met along the yeah, 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 yeah. We met there and we met and it was like June. Yeah. And I was leaving already. I knew for my master's in yeah. September. And I was like, yeah, good to meet you. I don't do long distance. I'll see you later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice guy, but. <laughs> yeah. So um, ironically, we'd stayed in touch and we were still together. And so I said, well, I guess I know nothing about Switzerland. Yeah. Um, but I work in international development. I work in migration and refugee work. And there's this place called Geneva. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, looking back at things that make me laugh, trying to figure out how you're going to find a job. I literally made a list of all the places I could find that did work in migration and refugee stuff. And none of them had openings. There were no openings, nothing. And so I just picked up the phone and the first one God. And I said, look, I'm looking for a job. I want to come to Geneva. This is my background. I know you don't have any openings right now, but when you do, where do you post them? Mm-hmm. That was my question. It wasn't that give me a job. It was like, where do you post them? Because I'm interested. And the woman goes, she goes, well, actually, we might be hiring someone soon. Send us your CV. Mm. And so I sent yeah. my resume in, and then two weeks later, they had me in for an interview, and I got the job. Wow. So it was also, you know, again, this lesson, and, like, we're so um, trained to go with, like, What's the typical there? way of applying for jobs, and it's always, you know, through and the applications yeah. that are open, and it had never occurred to me before, and now that's stuck with me for life, but now, you know, as and when I look for other positions, I'm just like, who would I like to work for, and call them, and be like, hey, yeah, well, and it's it's such an interesting approach because it's like, even if she had said no, you would have just kept going down the list, right? Like, you would have been in the same position. But I would have known the places where they post jobs. That I exactly. So there. so you would have had a next step either way. Yeah. But, you know, I, and I, I think it's really telling. And I think particularly when you get a point in your career, too, where you don't actually really apply for job applications anymore, people start, you know, approaching right. you, too. But sounds like you were kind of right before that stage. Right. But that's, I love that approach. I, I think that's... I mean, I had zero network, right? Like, I knew no one there. I knew I had nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it was a total blind pool. And I remember sitting, when I went for that interview, um, sitting in a big conference room, and they asked me, that, like, what brings you to Switzerland? Like, like, do you know anyone here? And I was so determined that, like, I was not coming to Switzerland for a boy. Yeah. <laughs> But I just, I like completely denied. I was like, nope, <laughs> I know no one here. I'm coming for the job. <laughs> and and then it kind of came out. I was like, well, no, I do know somebody, but he's like on the other side of the country. It's four hours away. But it was, my husband laughs about it now. He's like, you completely denied my existence. <laughs> Hey guys, Madeline here. I just want to take a moment to interrupt this incredible conversation to tell you really quick about Learning Lab. 
Learning Lab is our immersive educational experience designed for ambitious entrepreneurs, people who are doers and action takers who want to change the world and build a better business. We offer online content designed for you to be able to dive in each month to a core topic. And then we add that to our member portal along with tons and tons of resources to help you on your path of entrepreneurship. If that sounds like something that would be helpful to you as you start, grow, or scale your business, head over to fearlessintraining.com slash learning lab to join us in the learning journey. I hope to see you there. Okay, so Switzerland and then New York ended up. So, yeah, so I stayed, so I was working um, with the organization there in Geneva, which was interesting in a whole lot of other ways also because I was very young with the position that I had. Um, I started out working as a, as a policy analyst yeah. and, and at a nonprofit that worked at the UN, and then I got seconded by the European Commissioner for Refugees. And I was doing a lot of external um, evaluation work on. UNHCR programs. Um, and I think, you know, again, when you think back, like what makes you the woman you are yeah. today, I had an incredible boss mm-hmm. um, who was a true, like the truest mentor I've ever had um, was the guy that I was working for when I was there in Geneva. And so I think a lot of what I've learned and my perspective on things have come from that time there. Um, and I was there for, I guess, five years. And then Marcel and I got married, and I was kind of ready for something new. We were a little bit, you know, we were trying to decide where to live. Yeah. Because she was a French-speaking part of the country. He's from the German-speaking part of the country. My kind of area of expertise was communications. Mm-hmm. Well, in a country like Switzerland, where people are fluent, fluent, fluent in five languages easily, the fact that I was perfectly fluent in Spanish and not 100%, but mostly fluent in French, uh, but not in German, not in Italian. It was a huge disadvantage mm. for me for finding work mm. um, if we were to move outside of Geneva. Mm. And he didn't speak French well enough to be successful professionally in the French-speaking area. So we kind of had this, like, all right, like, where are we where going? We go? yeah. um, and it was also at a time where, you know, he and I had met here, but we hadn't really had adult professional experiences here because it was both. You know, I was a student growing up here. I'd never worked in the U.S. He came for a work study that was essentially like an exchange year, so it was all full of fun and social life. But, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. So we were kind of like, what would it be like to work in the U.S.? So we kind of set our sights on trying to work in the U.S. again for a bit and then decided if we wanted to stay in Europe or come back here. And he took a position with a company that kind of offered that opportunity. So they told him, they said, look, come work for us at the headquarters in, in Bern mm-hmm. um, for probably two years, and then there may be a position opening in New York. Not promised, but possibly. So we moved to Bern, which is the capital of Switzerland, German-speaking. I quit my job. Um, I had a really tough time there, and I think it was... You know, it's one of the, the tough periods of life. You're like, I don't ever want to go down that road again. But it was good for me because I hadn't realized how much of my identity I had wrapped up in my job. Yeah. And so suddenly I was in a place, you know, I'd come from a pretty prestigious position and career. And um, yeah, John, I come to a place where I'm now on unemployment. 
I don't speak the language. I'm going to German school, but the German that they teach in the classes is not what's actually spoken in the streets because Swiss German is not. It's different. Yeah, yeah, it's not codified as properly. I had to go for unemployment. I had to go in every week and like meet with a counselor who absolutely did not understand my career path or like what I'd been working. I remember her being like, you know, telling my experience. I laid everything out. She's like, why don't you go apply for a job at Goodwill? That's a nonprofit. And I have nothing against, yeah. you know, the yeah. Swiss equivalent of goodwill, but it was so far off of what I'd been doing yeah. and so frustrating for people not to understand that. And I, I remember sitting in a German class and then going around the room and it was mostly all, you know, like me, partners of Swiss citizens. All of us like didn't speak the language, obviously that's what mm-hmm. we were doing. And I remember them going around the room and like asking, well, what are you doing? And I and explained what I did. That it wasn't working right now. They said, "Oh, so you're a you're a housewife," and I just remember getting so angry. Yeah. And again, I have absolutely nothing against "quote unquote" housewives, yeah. you know, women who choose to stay home and engage in their work and interests there. But to be, you know, the way that it said it's like, "Oh, well, you're home now, so you're a housewife." Yeah, yeah. Um, it drove me bonkers. Yeah. So um, I was really struggling but was convinced we were going to be there for the two-year stint. And our apartment was bright orange, which I detest the color orange. <laughs> and so here I am, I'm like stuck at home yeah. all night long in this orange house that I can't stand. <laughs> and so I finally told myself, like, we're painting the house. Like, I can't yeah. handle this. So I literally had come home from the paint store, decided on the color paint. Marcel walks in and is like, look, this is the color we're going to paint the, the hallway. And he's like, I have something to tell you. And he goes, we're moving to New York, like, next month. Oh, my gosh. And he goes, the guy that was there just resigned, and they don't have anybody else, and we're going now. And you were probably like, yes. I was, yeah. You was were ready. Yeah. Um, just because it was, it was such a tough spot for us. So that radically changed things. And suddenly, like, all my job searching stuff that I had to turn into the unemployment office um, could include things in New York. Right. Um, and I ended up landing a position with the UN World Food Program. Wow. It's um, pretty prestigious. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was great. I had I had actually two or three opportunities that I got to choose from, which was amazing yeah. after these months of like nothingness yeah. and burn. Um, and then ironically, I had to move like the next day sort of thing. So oh, I ended yeah. up moving to New York even before... Marcel did, but technically wow. we came for his job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the one that was transferred there. And it always comes up because people are like, oh, you came back to the States for you. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> it was actually him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. So when you when you guys worked in New York for a couple of years, and then, you know, I sort of know that you were in New York when the idea for Vibe started percolating. How did that all unfold for you all? I mean, obviously you were working there. You had your daughters there, right, as well. So how did that unfold? So, so yeah, so we moved to New York. I was with the UN World Food Program for about a year um, and then had, had my fill of the UN. Yeah. And so I found an amazing job with another nonprofit that I adore that does a lot of work with um, access to water and toilets and hygiene education um, for women and children especially. And so I um, was working with them for about five years got pregnant and 
We're twins. Yeah. Not just one baby. <laughs> I was going to say, are they in your family or was that just like totally out of the blue? Like, cause isn't it twins are kind of a genetic thing, right? Twins are, fraternal yeah. twins are a genetic thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I came to find out after I was pregnant with twins that it didn't happen in my family. Yeah. But they were just far enough, you know, it's like my grandma's sister. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. I have one set of cousins that I know, but I had no idea. And interestingly, I also didn't know that, um, it can only be passed through the mother's side. Huh. So even if, you know, Marcel had had a bunch of twins in his family, okay. it wouldn't have played any role in our likely family. Hmm. So now we have twins in the middle of the concrete jungle hmm. in Manhattan. And people always laugh when they say this because I was actually first introduced to co-working through my work. Hmm. And um, I was, I would say I was forced into it. <laughs> Very unhappily. Um, so what had happened is we had outgrown, we had amazing office space that was right by Grand Central, so right in town we had nice. amazing location. We'd been paying under market rate on our rent, and we'd outgrown the space. And something that I had never thought of is that then when we went to look for a new space to move into and had to pay market rate, it looked like our overhead numbers went up. Yeah which influenced all of our charity navigator ratings mm. and like all of our, like all the things that donors look at to decide yeah. whether you're a good steward of the money funds, they're giving you. Yeah. We were going to take a nosedive mm. purely because we now have a big market rate. Mm-hmm. So they were being very thoughtful about, you know, trying to avoid having that happen. And so the interim solution was that everybody had to work from home one day a week. And then each team had to go to a co-working space one day a week. And I was the biggest whiner. I kicked and screamed. I thought this is the worst <laughs> idea ever. I said, you're gonna you're gonna break up our team dynamic. Culture, yeah. You're gonna break up the culture. We had like thick Lenovo laptops that were just bricks. And I did not want to call that around everywhere. Yeah. And I was so attached to my files and my folders and my books. And I just I whined and whined and whined. And I said, fine, you go anyways. <laughs> and uh, we were there for I wouldn't say a week, like it really wasn't long when I actually understood the magic of co-working mm. and all of us were so much happier. We were coming up with better, more creative ideas. I hadn't realized how um, locked into our silos we've been. Mm-hmm. We were like, you're preaching to the choir all the yeah. time because it's all your own nonprofit people in your specific sector. And um, I always, this is an example I always give. So, so you know, the kitchen areas, the common areas, the co-working spaces, it's really easy. You get to know people for who they are. And yeah. you don't, like, I don't know everything about people's jobs yeah. and yeah, yeah, what yeah. they're doing, but I know that, hey, you like to go hiking on the weekends and this is your family. And yeah. So there was a guy that he and I always happened to kind of pass in the kitchen at the same time. So one guy said, hey, how's it going? It's like, good. It's like, but I'm kind of stressed out. It's like, we just landed this contract with Facebook. <laughs> and he's like, but it's Facebook for nonprofits and I don't know any nonprofits. And he kind of like stopped and he kind of looked at me and he's like, you work for a nonprofit, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> he's like, you want to work on this with me? And I said, yeah, I do. And so that was the first of you know, then multiple different kind of partnership and collaboration and joint project yeah. opportunities that came up. And we'd spent so much time previously, you know, we need a lawyer to review a contract. We need a videographer for this project. You know, all these things that were outside of our wheelhouse. And then suddenly and it was all around. It's yeah. all around us, and it's people that you know you have good chemistry with. Yeah. And so life just became easier and better. Yeah. And so I became you know, a huge convert to, to co-working. 
So fast forward ahead back to the girls again, we kind of were at a point where we're like, we need to really decide um, what we want to do. Yeah. Um, it was obviously like it was more expensive with the two of them. Do we change jobs? Do we move to the suburbs? Um, and we were kind of looking at it too. You know, Marcel's family is all in Switzerland, my family's all in the Seattle area. Mm-hmm. Do we move closer to one or the other so that all of our limited vacation time isn't spent? So we ultimately decided to come here. And that was partly influenced to my husband's job is also very kind of city centric. Mm-hmm. And so we never, never in a million years did I imagine coming back to Kitsap. Um, mostly, <laughs> mostly because of career. Right? Yeah. I spent my whole career working internationally. He works in kind of high architectural design. That's all very city centric. Yeah. And um, when we realized that we actually could work remotely, that was kind of the big aha moment for us. Really, like, this area is amazing. It's the schools are good. It's comparatively affordable. It's beautiful, um, and we can work remotely. Families yeah. here and all that. But we kind of looked at each other and we said, you know, we're going to kill each other if we're both working from home. <laughs> and there's no, you know, there's no office space around here that really gets us excited. It just, there wasn't anything here. So yeah. we kind of looked at each other and said, well, why don't, like, why isn't there co-working spaces here? Like this is, you know, New York, now they're on every corner. Every block, yeah. Um, each one has its own flavor and experience. And, you know, so, um, that's what started us down kind of the co-working trend. And I always say like, it actually started kind of selfishly because yeah. we were like, well, and original our original idea was we're gonna find an old barn, an abandoned gas station, like something existing structure that's mm-hmm. been long abandoned, paint it cool and find fun people to come yeah. work with us. Yeah. And so that obviously has now evolved. I was gonna say it's evolved quite a bit. <laughs> 40,000 square foot building. Yeah. But um, it also kind of started down the track of then realizing like, hey, we can't possibly be alone in this. And like mm-hmm. how many other people like us would love to be living in this area, but feel like they can't, but they have to go someplace else. Um, and what opportunities would that open up? And when we started really digging into the numbers, these were these were like 2014 census numbers that are yeah. old now. But um, at that time it was 15,000 people in the county work from home. And 47,000 people a day commute outside of the county for work. Whoa. And so we kind of, when we looked at those numbers, we're like, we're like yeah, we there's can a major it. gap here. That, you know, there's people that have amazing home offices in this area, especially there's a lot yeah. of waterfront. People yeah. People use it for lack of space. Um, but it gets lonely. Yeah. And, you know, we have a luxurious commute by ferry into Seattle. But that gets old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I was thinking about that last night as I was writing the book back because I, you, you know, you mentioned how you kind of appreciate where you come from, from or your country a little more when you travel outside. And, you know, I was in Vegas for a couple of days and I'm like, oh, it's so nice to come back here. The air is so clean. But you look around and you see all the people on the boat who couldn't care less that like the sun is setting and that there's like the gorgeous mountain in the background. Because they've just, I was like, okay, you know, doing the math in my head, I'm like, if you commute, you know, every day, you're, you're doing this ride over 300 times a year. Like you're numb to it right. at a certain point. But everybody who visits is like, Oh, it's so idyllic. Right. It's so amazing. What meanwhile my dad's like, okay, I can endure five more years of this very thing. And we, you know, when we first had the idea, we started at like how many women talking to people, right? Yeah. Would this change your life? Would this be interesting? I'll never forget we have one guy who said to me, he's like, look, I moved to this area because I wanted to sail. 
Mm. And he's like, I, you know, I wanted to work, but my passion was sailing. And so I thought that I would move here. I joined the, was the Yacht yeah, Club. And um, it was all going to be great. But there's a bunch of requirements in terms of, I don't know if it's volunteer hours yeah. or time that has to be spent there. And he was, I was a member for a year and then had to give up my membership because I was never here. Like I spent so much time commuting that I wasn't even here to do the thing that I was here to do. And he said, you know, a space like what you guys are talking about would give me four hours a day of my life back yeah. and open up those opportunities to, you know, do more of my passion hobbies and spend time with more more time with my family. And yeah, yeah. So, so you know, obviously you were, you were out talking to people, you know, getting the idea off the ground, but there's this other element of, of co-working that I think is super important because you kind of like talked about how each space has its own flavor. Um, a big piece of co-working is, is community. Like it's, it's the fact that you can kind of build a culture or build a place where people feel like they're connected to one another. And I know you guys started really small and then you grew that community. So Tell me about that process and also why do you think that that community piece is so important to, to why this is successful? We were, and I think it's one of the things we got right. Yeah. We were super, super, super intentional about the community piece. So before we ever even left New York, um, we had done, like I said, we, we had actually, so this was a new build building, yeah. luxury in the co-working space because most places go into existing structures. Yeah. We had finished the entire design of the space from New York. And we had determined at that time that we wanted to, it had to be a ground up like community ownership of this mm-hmm. because there was way too much risk of, you know, even though I'm from this area, I grew up in this area, yeah. deep roots in this area. It looks like somebody Some outsider. from New York yeah. City, it's an outsider and we're gonna come and show you how it's done. That's not, that wasn't at all our intention or what we wanted it to do. Yeah. So we decided we wanted to, um, create this founding 40 program. Mm. And so we said, we're going to create 40 slots of people that will be kind of shared visionaries and ambassadors and give us feedback and like help us make this something that feels organically kids up. Yeah. Um, and that really meets the needs of the people here. But we were also, you know, adamant that it not become a duplication or a repeat of any group that already existed. Yeah. So we really wanted there to be a, a very different mix of people in that founding 40 group um, and people that were inspiring to others in the community that people like, oh, I know this person. Or I want to work highly yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 there and I'm in it sort of thing. So it was kind of a funny, you know, we didn't want it to be exclusive. So we didn't, you know, there wasn't an application process per se. Yeah. We didn't really turn anybody away. Mm-hmm. Um, but we tried to kind of like curate, especially yeah. those first people that came in. And we did that by one of the things I did, I like scoured the, was it the 30 under 40 or the yeah, yeah. 40 under 40. Yeah. Um, I had no idea who these people were. And I started just like cold calling. I'm like, hey, who are you? I guess like the cold calling. Thanks, Dad. But that was really cool because there were people who were already kind of recognized as movers and shakers within the community for whatever Yeah, for whatever they were doing, yeah. Um, and then it kind of grew from there. So we, I think we had 30 of the 40 before we left New York. Whoa. Um, but we had, you know, their faces were on the website. They were giving us feedback of like, hey, this color is cool, that one's not. Why don't you include this? Um, and so that 
it was a very symbolic. It was a two hundred forty dollar fee to join the founding yeah. party. Yes, that gave us a little bit of money to yeah. do something, but um, that wasn't. It wasn't enough money to you know, yeah. start a company with, and it wasn't really the intent for it to be a financial mm-hmm. move. It was much more like a symbolic commitment to what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and then you see now, if you come into the yes. space, you see they've all got they've a Lego wall with a printer, Lego. Like I love it. I love it. My my son when he came in, he was like, "Can I take these all home?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> they stay. They're here on display." He was like, uh-huh. "Yeah, <laughs> oh, it's awesome." So yeah, so we always said, you know, it's not about it's not about the space; it's about the community. Yeah, um, and that's kind of our mantra from from day one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that carried over. What ended up happening. There were delays on construction, and so we, you know, where we thought we would be coming from New York, and basically moving straight into this new building, we're going to build the furniture and then reopen and ready yeah. to go. That didn't happen, um, so we ended up opening a small temporary space that we called the Vibe Lab. Mm. Um, that was a little pivot there. <laughs> yeah, it was, and it's funny because when we when we realized that construction was going to be delayed, uh, someone I think it might have been my dad. He, he said, "He's like, well, why don't you open another spot?" And I was like, "Absolutely not." was so against it because to me, you know, the space was important in the sense of like, I believe so much in how space influences the way that you feel, yeah. the work that you yeah. do and like how it all comes together. Yeah. But we'd spent so much time painting this picture of what the space was going to look like also yeah. that in a place where co-working is such a new concept, I felt like it was way too risky yeah, it's a first impression situation. Like you, you kind of like you have that one opportunity. Yeah. And then also if you've got the plan of this beautiful building in your mind, like yeah. to go in something else kind of feels a little like, wow. Yeah. So, so I said, absolutely not. I spent two months working from coffee shops, which at first I was like, oh, this is going to be great because I'm going to understand the pain and, you know, I'm going to meet the people that will be like great, you know, candidates for coming to our gardens and, and I, by the end of those two months, I was so, I like, I couldn't drink anymore. It, it is the worst. It is the worst because a couple things happen. One, if you're somebody with like a little bit of a moral compass, you just drink coffee all yeah. day because you're like, I've been here for three hours. I need to buy something yeah. again. So you end up spending, you know, 30 plus dollars a day on right. coffee and snacks. And then the work you get done is pretty low quality because you're so caffeinated that you're just like, who am I right now? I'm just typing to type. Like, <laughs> I would come home at the end of the day with three full, I don't know how big yeah. I had three full cups of tea in my car at the yeah. end of every day. One was a hot tea, one was a nice tea. And I'd like come home and I'm like, I can't, I can't even look at this anymore. Yeah. And so at the end of two months, I was like, nope, we're open in space. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I came back to it. I was like, look, let's look, it's not about the space it's about the community mm. let's use this to introduce people to the concept and part of the reason that i agreed to it was because we had the opportunity to open the temp space in a building across the parking lot from the construction site yeah so people so could see what was coming see what was coming we put up you know the floor plans on the wall we had all of our potential renderings so there was a clear line of like yeah. this is temporary we did nothing the previous tenants in the space had been in that for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I told him, I said, I don't want to spend a dime on tenant improvements in here because we want to be in the new space. Um, but we did things, we got to draw on the wall. So we had a whole wall that I had taken Sharpie markers to and um, drawn in a whole bunch of different types of picture frames. And then we let people all post their business cards. It was okay. like Sharpie picture frame. <laughs> it was like one of the favorite things that we never yeah. would have done you know, had it not been 
There's space that was going to be painted over. Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't have done it. And so having that space let us um, help people understand what co-working is. Test out different types of programming and lunch and learns and workshops. We we called it the vibe lab because we were testing everything. Yeah, yeah, part of that was also the furniture. Mm. So all of the furniture was prototyped. We said, look, before we spend a hundred bucks on chairs, let's buy two of each one and have everybody vote on which one they like. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So we had a big you know, voting chart on the wall for everything. That's awesome. Um, which meant that by the time we actually moved into our finished space, there was a ton of ownership in it. People felt like they'd had say. Yeah, it's been curated for them in a sense. And yeah. we knew that you know there was some of the chairs that we bought that we ended up being there for a year. Yeah. But there was some of the chairs that we bought Broke. that were broken after yeah. two months. Yeah. So in the end, it was one of the best things that could have happened to us, but it was all centered on that community piece. Mm-hmm. So people ask us, and we moved into this space in October. Mm-hmm. So it was like seven months or so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're pushing 300 members. Wow. And people ask us, like, how did you get that many members just so fast? I'm like, well, it looks fast, mm-hmm. you know, but this has been three years of making a really intentional, like, you know, creating those relationships and those ambassadors and, and creating the ownership in it, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not me, it's an us. Thing. It's a, yeah. And it's also, it's interesting too, because you, you've had to do a lot of education here. And I think that that's one of the things like a lot of, you know, the folks who listen to the podcast are in areas where co-working is just like, yeah, everybody knows what it is. But what people don't realize is that, you know, you or, or whoever's sitting at the front desk during the day, people just walk up here and just like, are like, what is this? And like, yeah, I mean, you're, my favorite was when you told me about the lady who thought she could buy tea from the, the kitchen, like, you know, cause people literally have no idea what this concept is. So what was that process like? You know, cause again, you didn't want to feel like this outsider from New York coming in. What was it like to have to do that level of education of a concept that in other places people totally understand? Yeah. I think we're still in it. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, nine times out of ten, people still don't get it until yeah. they come here and yeah. then they see it and they're like, oh. Like, and if we have, we've had people, we had, so when we were still back in the back lab, yeah. um, one of the county commissioners came, he does a, um, I think it's a monthly kind of highlight mini film on yeah, different yeah, things yeah. that happen in the community and he decided to come and do one on, on vibe and on co-working. And so we wanted to make sure that we had house that day yeah. so we invited people to come in for the, the shoot and one of the members that came in um he's a founding party member he's always been super supportive is involved with a lot of the programming stuff but had never come in to actually work from the space and so he came in and everyone brought actual work to do yeah. you know and this was like the most distracted day you could possibly have because we're crammed in this teeny tiny office space we've got three different cameramen, we got the commissioner, and like we're set up interviewing in one room. And so we finish all that, the day ends, and he says to me, he goes, I got so much done today. And I, looked, I thought he was joking. I was like, all right, come on another day, we can actually be productive. He's like, no, I'm serious. He goes, I got more done here today than I have ever gotten done in my home office. He's like, I have an amazing home office. And he goes, but I don't have the distraction. Either. It's a different type yeah, of distraction. Yeah, yeah. So yes, there's you know things happening, but it's not like my dog's barking and I got to take the dog out for a walk or the UPS delivery person is here. I'm going to go answer that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I still feel like despite all of the 
efforts we've done towards education. Um, yeah, to get people in. Get it yeah, do a little trial. I, I, so it's interesting because that's, that's exactly why I added, because I had, I had worked in co-working spaces before in the city and there were pros and cons to it. You know, it was great at the time because I was growing a, a team for a software company. And so for us, from an expansion perspective, it was very nice because, you know, if we added two people tomorrow, we could move into a bigger space, which was really good. And, but for me, I was that home office person when we moved to Kitsap County and I was starting to get it really lonely and a little stir crazy. And, you know, the door bells ringing. Or, and of course, my home office is like right next to the front door. But for me now, I plan coming here like this one day of week when I really want to do a certain type of work that is mm-hmm. pretty deeply focused. Mm-hmm. And it's when I like want to um, work on something that's a really big creative project or something of that nature, because my brain works differently in different mm-hmm. places. And I think that's what people don't realize is that like, you kind of get in in ruts and like Mm -hmm. you were saying, like space kind of defines the way that you work. And so I literally now plan my work around coming here because I'm like, Mm -hmm. that's the kind of work I can get done in that space, which is different than in a coffee shop, which is different when the way I work at my house. And, um, and here I actually, like when I'm here, like I kind of treat myself to the cafe downstairs and I feel like I, I like take care of myself better than when I'm working at home because I'm like, okay, I'll eat at the sink and then I'll go back to work. So right. it's, it's a nice balance to break up the week. And I right. think that probably a lot of people didn't even know they could have that. Right. Well, I do think, um, so I do think space matters, you know, as yeah. much as we're like, it's not about the space, it's about the space does matter. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really cool. You know, we worked with an amazing design and architectural team and one of the things, so my moving back to Washington, yeah. Uh, the one thing I was really nervous about was whether I'd be able to handle the weather. Mm. Uh, because I've been living in all really sunny places or places that have four very seasons. seasons yeah. and sun, and like, I need sun. Mm-hmm. And so I told the design team at the time, I was like, you've got to give me as many windows as you possibly can. And that also matches with you know, all the research that's been mm-hmm. done on happier, more productive, productive workplaces. Yeah. But it's one of the first things that people notice when they come here is how much natural light there is. It's just, it's abundant. The window's actually open, so mm-hmm. there's airflow. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also things that I hadn't thought about so we were working with the design team. And there's a whole lot of research to, um, for example, how ceiling height affects the type of organ thinking that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So if you want to do like big picture creative thinking, you actually want to be in places with high ceilings. And if you're trying to like hunker down and do more focused or like more kind of serious conversations, you want lower ceilings. Hmm. And so there was a lot of thought that went into this space. Um, we have kind of open trusses in a lot of the main work areas, the private offices, the conference rooms, we have a thing called Think Tank, which is yeah. a deep think room, all have lower and closed ceilings. Um, so there's a lot of things that people don't even think about that have been integrated here, which is kind of why people walk away and like, I feel different here. Yeah. We had one member who typically uses a, a satellite, a seasonal affective disorder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she came in probably in March and she comes up to me and she goes, I just realized she was, I went the whole winter without ever pulling out my lamp. Mm. And she'd been working here. Yeah. And so, you know. It seems like a little change, but it has, it, I mean, it's obvious it has big, big impact. And I think that that's one of the things that's going to be so cool to see about the legacy of this space is to watch as companies get incubated out of here and as 
know, businesses that grow, you get to say, yeah, they started at five or they were a part of the founding 40 or, or whatever mm-hmm. that connection is. I think that the legacy will, will be related to a lot of people who just were suddenly able to work in a different way and maybe never would have had that great idea if they hadn't come to Vibe. And I think that's, you know, it's going to take five, 10 years to kind of see that, but it's going to be the coolest thing. And you guys are already kind of starting that with the, with the, the startup kids app. Can you talk a little bit about that program and why, you know, why it came into being and why it's aligned with Vibe? Yeah. So two things, I think, um, it happens even without the programs. And yeah. I think it's, we're, we're, like I said, seven months or a year and a half in, and yeah. on it, and we're already seeing that. And part of that is, um, you know, from a couple of front desks. It's not yeah. receptionists, but we have yeah. you know, actually members who help us staff the front desk. And part of the role they play is uh, really kind of community tumbling. Mm-hmm. So they almost play matchmaker. And, yeah. you know, we get to know every member who comes in the space, kind of general sense of interest of what they're working on. And we actually, just this last week, I connected two members who had been in the space together, but like never talked to each other or mm-hmm. kind of separate ways. Well, they work in the exact same space and they're going to the exact same conference in France next week. <laughs> and one of the members was planning to attend the workshop that the other member is leading. Oh my gosh. And she went back and she was just like, oh, you're the workshop. <laughs> in France of all places. And, and we connected them here. Because yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, this is even another example of live in a small community where we think everyone knows each other yeah and yeah there's so many of us that live on the same streets that have no idea and so yeah. we've got several different examples already of companies that have formed client relationships that have taken place hiking buddies that mm-hmm. have been found here mm-hmm. um, and that's in part because of that you know connector role that we're able to play yeah. from the welcome desk yeah. but the six month startup program is a program that is really really special um, and it's new to this area for sure one of the things that we were really looking at is saying like kids app is such a wealth of talent and experience and ideas and resources and yet we're not finding each other you know it is this we're living on the same street and don't realize we're mm-hmm. working on the same thing and now we're working at the same startup mm-hmm. um, because they found each other here mm-hmm. And so the six-month startup program is one that is kind of helping us connect and give a tribe mm-hmm. to people who, you know, have had these great ideas, but don't, you know, they've been hiding, in, the idea has been hiding under the bed because, like, I don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't figure it out on my own, and I don't know what resources to go to, and that sounds like something I have to take to Seattle if I want to make it work, and I don't want to give up that quality of life to do it. So it's essentially a kind of founder development program. So from ideation to revenue, like what is your big idea? Um, is there a market for it? What is your revenue model? How are you going to take it to market? And the idea is, you know, don't fail fast, mm-hmm. but kill bad ideas fast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so by the end of six months, you either know it's a bad idea and you go back to the drawing board and start again, or you're at a place where you can actually take it forward. And part of the program, the big component of it is the mentorship side of it. Mm-hmm. So we've got a team of mentors that are all volunteers, all super experienced in businesses and startups and all of their diverse sectors. And um, they're kind of the, so the tribe. Yeah, I was going to say the leaders. Yeah. To help you figure out how to make these connections. And the cool thing about it is the six-month startup program 
is the brainchild of a guy named Dave Parker, mm -hmm. who's a venture capitalist on the Seattle side of the water. And he started the program because he was like, I'm tired of people coming to me with ideas that suck. That suck. <laughs> like, you can take my time and you're yeah. your time. Yeah. But rather than me just kicking you back to the curb, let's figure out how to get you to the point that you should have been when you came to talk to me. Mm -hmm. And so that's why he developed the program. And now he's interested in like, hey, other cities, like, take this form, like, take this blueprint and like, let's get more good ideas to market. Mm -hmm. So the way he's doing it, you know, there's a Slack channel now for six month startup that includes all of the cities that are rolling it out. So mm -hmm. like we have six month startup kids app is a channel within the National, national, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you not only have access to all of the, the mentors and resources here in Kitsap, but you're connected to all of Seattle and soon Atlanta and soon Spokane. Wow. There's a bunch of other cities. Yeah, in yeah. Yeah, so it creates you know, an even bigger network. And people are finding co-founders there. They're finding investors there. They're finding other partners for their projects and referral of resources that are so much bigger than our tiny little place over. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. That's so cool. Hey guys, Madeline here. I feel so rude for interrupting this conversation, but I'm bursting to tell you about Learning Lab. Learning Lab is our online educational community designed for ambitious entrepreneurs that want to dive in and do more to build a better business. If that sounds like you, head over to fearlessintraining.com slash learning lab to join us on this learning journey. Okay, so I have to jump on something there because you dropped the word investor and you dropped the word venture capital. And obviously, this build out costs money and you have to get funding sometimes to get an idea off the ground. Talk to me about your experience um, getting funding for this idea and navigating that and also thoughts and advice you would give um, probably particularly you know, female founders who are looking to get funding because the statistic right now in our state is that 1% of venture capital in Washington state goes to females. Um, so we have a long way to go to bridge that gap. But I think partially it's changing the people who are in the room investing in companies. But advice you might offer after you've been through experiences or seen other startups even navigate the experience of you know working with, with outside funding. Um, so I'm not the expert on this by any, Just <laughs> sure. but you have experience. So, so, so we, um, did our best to bootstrap this, um, so far. So it's, but we have, we have a private investor um, who, you know, shared, I think that, I think the biggest challenge when it comes to investors is finding people who share your vision. And that's all, you know, that's still my fear. It's like, gosh, if you partner with the wrong person and, you know, you give away too much equity or like you lose your, you lose you your, you lose it. Oh lose yeah. Your idea. Yeah. And so that's always the risk factor, but it terrifies me. Mm -hmm. And so we were really lucky to be able to find somebody who, you know, cared deeply and passionately about what we're doing and like really partnered with it to, with us to make that success mm -hmm. here. We have plans to expand. Mm -hmm. And so that's been from day one. We said we wanted to have multiple locations and we will not be able to bootstrap additional yeah, locations. Yeah. So that's something that we're just kind of getting into now and trying to figure out what does that look like? We are in the fortunate or unfortunate position in that we have a lot of people who are interested in what we're doing and mm -hmm. a lot of people who are like, you need money? I'll give you money. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and so how do you sort out... Um, 
How do you, you know, find I don't want to say the good from the bad, but yeah. like, how do you how do you really find people who are with you as partners and mm-hmm. not just like in it to make money? Because mm-hmm. frankly, coworking's not a big money maker. No, no. Um, and I think it probably comes down to that community piece, like mm-hmm. really having to find people who care about the community and and I'm sure there's a connection element too. Like, you know, I think it one of the few things that people think about, you know, really, especially in the early startup stage, is like not just that they could bring money to the table, but that they can bring, you know, a good network to the right. table. And I've I've watched a lot of startups, you know, just grab the biggest cash bag and, and try and run as fast as they can but pass up on opportunities where they could have made relationships, where they could have met potential right. employees, all the people they need to actually build out a really solid team to take, you know, that leap to the next level. And that's really where you guys are at is right. who are the people who are going to support that next right. chapter. Right. Um, I will say, I think, um, you know, conceptually with what we're doing, this area has been so supportive. I mean, the huh. level of enthusiasm that we've gotten from everyone from, you know, Chamber City of Commerce, yeah, yeah, yeah. Level through all of the civic organizations to private businesses to the educational institutions, like everyone is um, really energized and excited, I think, by everything that can happen here. Mm-hmm. And so to have that level of support has been amazing. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, as we think about other locations, like we really we want that same level of buy-in and not, I think. With co-working in particular, I think there's a real risk for it to be seen as the savior. Mm-hmm. You know, you come in and come into our community that's struggling for whatever X, Y, Z economic reason, and we're going to put a co-working space in it, and everything's going to be great. Yeah. And all the entrepreneurs are going to come, and then businesses are going to just start sprouting out the ground. Mm-hmm. People, and it, it, that's not the way it works. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we come back to, so, okay, we got to find people who really, mm-hmm. really understand this. Yeah, you have to find places, too, where, like, you know, there is that room to grow as well. Like we took a trip to Bend a couple uh, weeks back and, you know, it was very interesting talking to people there because Bend has, has become this hub in Oregon for venture capital money, for new tech, lots of startups. Um, and, you know, the old timers of Bend are really unhappy <laughs> because of, you know, the influx in their city and and granted, you know, one of my friends is joking. She's like, if there's three cars, it's considered traffic, you know, because of the way it used to be. But at the same point, like, you have to find a place that's not only got room to go grow, but is is ready and open to that kind of growth. Because, you know, if you accelerate that, you know, people can point to you and say, they're, they're the problem, you know, it's, you know, and then you have, you know, the opposite of community that people are kind of up against you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure you guys are really thinking closely, not just about who you, who you partner with from the funding side, but where you place things. Across the board. Yeah. 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 What about, you know, you've got twin daughters now, they're four? Four. Yeah. four. Okay. So they're in preschool and, they are going to obviously go to school here, but your business is growing and expanding. And, you know, obviously you're around a lot of women in this co-working space who are navigating, you know, how they do the whole entrepreneurship and motherhood thing. How do you integrate all of the things that you have going on with, you know, raising two twin girls and setting that example? Again, another one I'm not sure. Maybe <laughs> someone who has will be shocked because I don't know who yeah. has a master. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, my girls have grown up with this, right? Like, it's kind yeah. of all they have ever known. Like, we have a picture, and I don't put stolen wall. We have a picture of my girls sitting at our dining table in New York and on the wall behind them. So they were probably 
like maybe a year and a half old. They're sitting in their high chairs. Marcel's sitting on the other side having breakfast, and on the wall behind them is like all the like million different mock-ups of our logo. And yeah. we're still trying to decide what the logo is going to look like. So we've literally been surrounded by this <laughs> from day one. The reality. Um, and so it's interesting. You know, I like to think that it's going to have a really positive experience yeah. influence on them. Um, they come, you know, they come up with the kids say the goofiest thing, right? Yeah. So we're like, we're driving, and, and everyone's like, "Mom, you're the you're the boss of that, right?" And you know, what does that mean? And you know, what does boss mean? And what does leadership mean? And um, we often have them hear, even if it's just at the beginning of like a lot of the after hours events mm-hmm. and things. Um, and so, and nine times out of ten, you know, we try to have them at the back of the room, and then yeah. they scurry up to the front. Yeah. The time, you know, so all the time, they're in my arms as I'm holding the microphone. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, we've kind of said, like, look, you know, when we started out on this, it was how do we build a space for the place that we're at in yeah. life, um, which includes kids. And most of our, I'd say probably at least a third of our members here have young kids. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not. We don't have kids in here during the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we've tried to kind of our whole approach to co-working has been, you know, this is work plus life. Mm-hmm. Like this is not the traditional view of what work means. Like we're really trying to recognize people are juggling families and groceries and laundry, and which is why you know we've created partnerships with a couple of different childcare and preschools um, to give either kind of priority entry to buy members or discounted tuition. We're now pick up for Kids Out Fresh, which is a local online food market, you know, trying to like simplify and kind of help people integrate their lives a bit better. Um, but it'll be interesting to see as the girls get older. What they think about it. Yeah, 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 because it's from their reality. It's... They, they spend so much time in this place that it's now the only weekends we come and someone comes through and they'll give the tour. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's so cute. It's so cute. But I think, you know, I think the most important thing is that, you know, like you said, it's it's not that any one woman has it like all figured out and there's perfect, you know, example. But I think just the matter of doing what you described, being at the front of the room with, an, you know, and normalizing that is really important because, I mean, a lot of people don't realize this, but Seattle is the second uh, second kid to adult ratio, like lowest in the country besides San Francisco. Um, and so, yeah, there are more dogs than children in the city of Seattle, which makes sense because people take their dogs everywhere. But I really felt that raising a kid in Seattle, um, you know, and when I was going back to work after my second son was born, I had to bring him to not, not very often, um, and not for long stints of time, but my husband was, was firefighting over here in Kitsap. And so he wouldn't get back from his shift till, you know, 10 or 10 30 sometimes in the morning. And so I would get on the light rail with the baby and I would push him into the co-working space and people acted like I brought an alien. Like there were a few people like at the front desk staff were super sweet. And like, obviously my, my, you know, team, they loved him and thought it was really cute that he would come in. But like people in there, it was like, you could have, you could have brought like a rabid possum in and they would have probably been more excited, you know, and it wasn't even that he was disrupted and we had had a private office, but it was just culturally, you know, and granted a lot of the folks there were younger and they didn't have kids. And so it was just a different construct. But for me, you know, I can't do, I have my work and I have my kids. Like those aren't separate things because I'll be in the middle of my work and the kid's going to call at school saying, mom, I forgot my lunch. This was literally last Friday. And so 
I have to drop everything and go to the school. And, um, and I think that that's why more women are turning to entrepreneurship is just because that if you sit around and you wait for organizations to catch up with that need for integration, mm-hmm. you're going to be waiting a really long time. And for me, just taking that outside element where the only person I had to ask was myself if it was okay mm-hmm. out of the equation was was a huge game changer for me. I think I was super lucky and I you know, realized that more and more with each passing day mm-hmm. that the organization that I worked for in New York um, was so, so it was majority women, mm-hmm. which was unusual kind of where I've been working. Um, our CEO, when she started working for the organization, her youngest daughter, I think, was like maybe six months old. And, you know, three weeks into the job, she had to travel to India. And we were all kind of watching, we're like, oh, let's see how this works. And it was no big deal. She's going to come with me, the nanny's going to come, and we're going to travel together, and we're going to be back. And that kind of set the precedent then. You know, I traveled a fair bit also. Mm-hmm. My first international trip after the girls were born, they were maybe six months old. Mm-hmm. And, you know, initially it's that panic. I mean, you have so many moments of panic. Like, mm-hmm. you have kids and I go back to work. And then you have two kids. still be there. <laughs> yeah. How do I cover childcare? I'm distracted. Where do I go to pump? Like, yeah. all of these things. And, you know, it was my coworker who showed up at my house when the girls were two weeks old. And she's like, do you have a pumpkin bra? I was like, what's a pumpkin bra? And she's like, here, I'm bringing you one. She showed up at my door and like, left a pumpkin bra. Life-changing, yeah. right? Because now I can be hands-free and I can yeah. do other things for my work. And um, when I had to travel, they said, look, the difference, you know, whatever um, help you need for childcare between your normal childcare and like when your husband can come mm-hmm. pick them up, we'll cover that cost. Oh, wow. And so there was like, all of these things that... Um, they kind of normalized for me in a way that was like, oh, this really isn't that hard. Like, this is actually how it's done, which I know some of my other colleagues there will tell you that they had to fight really hard to get mm-hmm. to where that was normal. Um, but it has really shaped my perspective on like what's possible. And, you know, things here, I, so I was still pumping as we were designing this place. And I said, over my dead body, are we opening up a workspace that doesn't have a designated pump? Yeah. yeah. So we have a mother's lounge, you know, yeah. and, and we have here even as we don't necessarily allow or promote kids in during the day mm-hmm. it, it happens right yeah, like yeah. something happens childcare falls through whatever um we have boxes of legos here we have puzzles we have coloring books mm-hmm. and um, we often bring them out yeah the kid will probably sit on the floor in a conference room and we'll say here's the here's, here's the, the box yeah. it's totally fine yeah and so i like to think that we're kind of trying to you know, we're not yeah. perfect we're not as integrated as I would mm-hmm. like to be personally. Um, but I think we're kind of helping people. To, it's interesting when we give the tour to some people, we specifically point out this is the designated mother's lounge. People are like, oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a different way of thinking. And like, I, I do have some beliefs like putting women more in the leadership and decision making, you know, it really matters. Because quite frankly, like, those are part of, part of it is just experiential. If you're not a man who's ever, you know, pumped breast milk, which I'm yet to meet one, you know, like you're not going to be able to know, you know, a, how that can be a struggle, how that can be a challenge, how that can be, you know, one of the hardest parts about going back to work for a lot of women, like you're not going to know that that's a really important piece, you know? And so just some of it is just awareness, but also, you know, it comes down to being the power to be able to push that decision forward. And, you know, if you're not, you know, if you're at the bottom of the totem pole, you can't really, you know, get that heard or make it a, a priority. 
what what would you say you know to a woman and this is always kind of my closing question is like you know embarking on this path of you know entrepreneurship it's obviously not for everyone but a lot of my listeners are women who either have just started a company or are thinking you know, they've got that idea that's keeping them up at night you know what what would you share based off of your experience with another woman who is thinking about becoming an entrepreneur but maybe hesitating for integration reasons or you know, maybe I don't know where I'd work during the day. I'd go crazy at home. I mean, what would you offer? Um, so I think two things. Um, the first, I think this is kind of shifting, but I think for so long we've been taught to like hold good ideas close. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about it until you mm-hmm. go pregnant. And I think that's the biggest mistake. Um, I think the more like take your idea and like broadcast it because Ideas are cheap and execution is not. So if you're certain you can follow through on the execution piece, your idea is only going to get better um, the more you talk about it and the more people are like, people People naturally want to help. Yeah. So if I hear something you're working on, I'm going to be like, oh, have you talked to this person? Have you talked to that person? Have you read this? Can I send you that? You know, and that you'll get so much further that way than you ever will, you know, writing in your notebook and keeping it, mm-hmm. keeping it quiet. So Number one, I would say talk about it mm-hmm. endlessly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, number two, I think it's really, really important to find, because I find your tribe, like find those people who um, will really support you. And, and I don't mean only in the like warm and fuzzy, like mm-hmm. let me keep patting you on the back and telling you a good job sort of mm-hmm. way, but people who will shoot bullets in your idea mm-hmm. and ask you the toughest questions um, like you know, ask the questions like, what, what, what can I do that would make this idea fail, mm. and have these people like shoot the holes in it so that it can be as solid as it can be. I think so often we're all too polite, mm-hmm. and we think we're doing each other a favor, a favor yeah. but we're doing an incredible disservice. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how you find those people. Like it just kind of for me has often been luck or a common introduction for someone that's come up as I've been talking about it, but when you do find those people, like hold on to them because that's, that's what you really need to, I think, succeed and be stronger in whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. I think it's important. And and that holding on to them piece is the most critical because it's like, you may think that they could just help you in that one arena, but you never know down the road. And I, I love, you know, I, people, you know, recommend forming almost like a personal advisory council. Yeah. You know, we think that you know, advisory situations are only for, for businesses and boards, but it's really important, especially if you're somebody who does have, you know, a lot of ideas going on to have a group of people around you who can help you vet them and then, you know, eventually maybe bring them to life. I right. love that feedback. Right. So last question is, is, you know, if, if somebody wanted to learn more about Vibe or follow you guys online and just, you know, keep up with the story, where are the best places to do that? So our website is vibecoworks.com. Um, and then we're back to on Instagram. We're working on that channel. So <laughs> those are the best ones to find us right now. Okay, cool. And of course, come visit us. Yeah. If you're here in Pulse, we're going to show you around. We're in- Welcome, everyone, to the Women Talk Money segment of the show. I am here with Claire Van Holland of the CV Ledger. And Claire, the first question we ask our guests when they come into the Women Talk Money Quarter is, Do you see yourself as a spender, a saver, or an investor? An investor. For sure. What what do you like to invest your money in? 
things that hold value. <laughs> Is that real estate or, or stock? Um, it's all of the above. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I like to keep a very mixed spread as we're generally advised to do. Um, so some of it in assets, you know, personal belongings, even um, I really only invest in things that do hold some sort of value as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, quality over quantity <laughs> always. And if they're, you know, assuming that there is a value assigned to it, then that's usually where I'm putting my money. Mm. I like that. I think that's super important because I think that women, you know, one of the biggest spending areas where women, you know, dump a lot of money is into, um, into clothes and shoes and things that are maybe made in a low quality way. And there's, you know, so much fast fashion in the world that women end up dumping cash into, and then it doesn't hold long-term value because it's not made of quality. And I think of you as somebody who's pretty stylish. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I, I am a, I'm a sucker for vintage. That's for sure. So I'll always <laughs> invest in really good vintage pieces whenever I can. Mm, I love that. Um, next question for you is when you look at your life this far, what do you see as your biggest financial accomplishment? Being able to build a company, a firm and hitting my my target revenue goal within the first two years. That is amazing. That's really, really impressive. And, and was that a vision you just sat down and set for yourself and then, you know, slowly worked towards? Mm-hmm. Yep. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. I think it's pretty amazing too to have set goals like that and then achieve them. It feels pretty damn good. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's amazing. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, and then, well, and then I'll take that st- just one step further. Um, it was being able to do that and then being able to, um, <laughs> purchase my dream car. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh my gosh, I can totally see you in that. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was honestly, it was to spec. So um, that was completely crazy, but I guess the secret worked. Boss <laughs> right there. I like it. Uh, last financial question for you is that, you know, if you were to look back in time and based off of the lessons you've learned in your life, what would be the one piece of you know, financial fluency or financial literacy you might offer your younger self or another woman who's looking to establish wealth in her life. Make saving money as easy as possible. And by as easy as possible, I mean to set up saving money such that you are setting it and forgetting it because that is literally how I've saved money my entire life was Once I started a thing, then I'd go, okay, well, I'm just going to automatically send money this much amount to this account, this account, that account. And then I don't have to think about it anymore. And then when I do check it again, it's like, oh, amazing. There's money there. And I've said it and forget it. And and it it requires no thought. And and I think that's even just an ethos that (laughs) I carry across many, many other places in my life. But saving money very much, it works set it and forget it. I love that. I love that. And I think too, like there are so many great apps, whether you're like rounding up your purchases or it's doing auto transfers to specific, like a travel account and a savings account and your 401k. Like there's so many different ways to automate the movement of money these days that we kind of don't have an excuse to 
to take advantage of it and be smart about it. Oh my gosh, it's it's literally the best thing ever. (laughs) You guys know I love stories of entrepreneurship so, so much, but I think this story is such a perfect example of how there's like, there's no path. There's no prescribed path. Nobody's going to sit down and be like, no, really, if you want to be this when you grow up, here's all the steps that you take. That's not how life works. And particularly if you're thinking about going down a path of entrepreneurship, I want you to hear this story and realize that so much of it can be of your own creation and your own inspiration. And I think hearing all these little pieces of Elena's story suddenly made me see the whole of who she is and the things that she's created in our local community and just understand her so much better. So I loved, loved, loved having this conversation with her and I love being able to bring it to all of you. If this is a conversation that inspired you, that got your brain thinking or made you maybe made you think about somebody you know and their own aspirations and the things that they want to create in the world, definitely pass this episode along. Send them the link. Tell them to subscribe on iTunes or wherever they get their podcasts. And if you loved it, make sure to leave us a review too because my team loves to see that. They, they love to see that you know our hard work in making these episodes mean something to somebody. But it also helps us get in the hands of more people. So please, 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 wherever you found the podcast, leave us a review. Let us know that you love this episode and spread it on. Pass it on to somebody who you think would be inspired. Have an amazing rest of your day. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, I'm your host, Madeline Pratt with the Finding Fearless podcast.